Well, there are a lot of things in this world that promise life transformation. There are self-help programs and personal coaches and financial seminars and fad diets and books about positive thinking. But today we begin a study in the gospel according to Matthew, and I would tell you that this book, if we engage with it seriously, really will transform your life. Because this is a book that truly and powerfully causes us to encounter Jesus. And to really encounter Jesus is to experience life transformation. This is the only way that unbelievers who are spiritually dead can receive new life, is by encountering the risen Christ and, and falling before Him in repentant worship. But it's also true that believers need to encounter Christ. You know, our need for Jesus doesn't end when we first believe. We have a great ongoing need for Jesus as believers. That's why one of the most important passages in the Bible about how believers are to live says this, Hebrews 12, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Believing, friends, God intends for us to live lives of faith, persevering in trust and obedience. And this passage tells us that we do that by looking to Jesus. Not just seeking Jesus' mercy and help and guidance, which we should do, but this passage tells us that God has given Jesus to believers as our supreme example of what it looks like to live a life of faithful obedience to God. Jesus was so obedient, he was willing to endure even the worst humiliation in this world, the humiliation of the cross. But he scorned that humiliation because he so trusted his Father's good purposes, and so he endured the cross. And that act of faith has been fully vindicated, and this text says Jesus now stands exalted alongside the Father. And the idea is this, friends. By looking to Jesus' faith and His obedience and His endurance, we will be spurred on to perseveringly trust and obey the Lord. And so it is necessary for us, believing friends, to reflect on the life of Jesus. And so the Gospel of Matthew, which presents us with the life of Jesus in such a powerful way, is critically important for our spiritual welfare. Now, Matthew's Gospel is one of four narratives about the life of Jesus which begin our New Testament. And I should point out here that this title, The Gospel According to Matthew, is not an original part of the book. It's not in anywhere in the inspired text. This book never explicitly identifies our author as the Apostle Matthew. That identification was made by the earliest church. But I see no reason to doubt their conclusion. They were much closer to all these things than we were. So I think we should assume that Matthew wrote this book. Now, I don't intend to give a full introduction to this book, but I want to point out a few distinctives about Matthew's gospel to whet our appetite for what is to come in following weeks. It is in Matthew's gospel that we find our marching orders, the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. It is in Matthew's gospel that we find the largest amount of Jesus' teaching, including the Sermon on the Mount, teaching which Hebrews 2 tells us presents such a great salvation which 1 Timothy 6 says contains sound words that accord with godliness. We do well to reflect on Jesus' teaching. 
Gospel of Matthew also teaches us much about what it just means to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus, and how we are to live and function together as a church, how we are to pray, for the Lord's Prayer is in this book. But probably the most unique feature of Matthew's Gospel is its recurring emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made by the Old Testament. That is the theme that dominates this book. And it is especially the dominant theme of the first section of this book, which runs through chapter 4, verse 11, which introduces us to Jesus before his ministry. And it is, in fact, this same theme, which is the subject of the introductory passage to the book, which we're going to look at this morning, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, which is the genealogy of Jesus. Now, hearing that we're going to a genealogy today on this rainy day may make you think, man, I should have stayed at home and watched this online. Unless you're one of those people who spends all their free time on Ancestry.com and you have a massive family tree and you say, I love genealogies. I know that I said Matthew is a life transformative book. I know you may think, how's a genealogy going to transform my life? But friends, we can't just come to this text and skip right by it. I know a lot of us do when we come to, in our Bible reading to stuff like this. But it's not good because this is a part of Scripture. So 2 Timothy 3 tells us this is breathed out by God, and this is profitable for our instruction and our training in righteousness. But more than that, I would tell you that today's passage is a rich text, and it makes a number of important connections across our Bible. And so we should really find this passage edifying and educating. And the main idea, again, of today's passage is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the hopes and promises of the Old Testament. Now, before we plunge into today's text, I need to make just a few statements about this genealogy. Number one, the New Testament records two genealogies of Jesus. There's today's passage and another one found in Luke chapter 3. When I was a kid, I often heard that one of these genealogies presented Joseph's family tree and the other presented Mary's family tree. But that's actually not true. If you've got a Bible open, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. We read that Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. All right, so Matthew's genealogy culminates in the birth of Jesus. And throughout this genealogy, over and over, Matthew repeats the formula, so-and-so was the father of such-and-such. But here at the end, Matthew breaks the pattern to clearly point out that, Je that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Matthew is absolutely going to insist in the passage we look at next week that Jesus was born of a virgin. That is absolutely true. That is reality. We cannot reject that. As many uh, modern pastors want to reject that, we must clutch the truth of the virgin birth very, very tightly. Jesus has no human father. And so Jesus is connected to this lineage by being the son of Mary, who is the wife of Joseph. But the actual descent in this genealogy notes Note this, terminates with Joseph. Now, in the same way, in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, we read, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, and so forth. Luke also traces Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. And yet, despite both of these genealogies running from Jesus through Joseph, there are a number of differences between them. Luke's genealogy contains 32 more names than Matthew's does. And that's not simply because Luke's genealogy goes the whole way back to Adam, while Matthew stops at Abraham. 
No, in fact, over certain periods of history, Luke just records substantially more names than Matthew does. In the same way, the identities of the people in these genealogies are not the same. For instance, Matthew traces Joseph's descent and thus Jesus' lineage through David's son Solomon, while Luke traces it through David's son Nathan. Say, well, which is right? If we believe in the reality of the Bible, which we must, and if we believe the Bible's own claims about its inerrancy, then I think we have to believe that both of these genealogies accurately set forth the family history of Jesus. Say, well, why are there then these divergences? I think the broadest divergences can be explained by the idea that one of these genealogies, Luke's, sets forth the biological descent of Joseph and thus places Jesus in the family of David. While the other genealogy, the one we're going to look at today, traces how the royal title, king of Israel, would have descended through the ages down to rest upon Jesus. We cannot definitively know that this explanation is right, but this explanation is, uh, the, I think, the best one, and this is the answer that most conservative commentators have settled on. Additionally, other discrepancies, like the apparent disagreement about who Joseph's father is, may be explained by Jewish concepts like leveret marriage, in which one man died and his brother would marry his wife and raise up a child in his dead brother's name. We're also going to see in a few minutes that Matthew has deliberately omitted at least a few names from this genealogy. So yes, there are discrepancies between these genealogies, but they can be satisfactorily explained. Now, the second thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is how this genealogy begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew introduces Jesus to us by way of these three titles, and we're going to spend time considering them this morning. Matthew insists that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Three titles, which mirrors the fact that this genealogy is comprised of three sections. We see that in our final verse this morning, chapter 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we've got three sections. One that goes from Abraham to David, one from David to the exile, and one from the exile to Jesus. And in each of these three sections, we find 14 names, or in one case there's an event instead of a name. Now, I said a moment ago that Matthew has omitted a few names from at least the second section of this genealogy, we will see. It's possible he did the same in the first and the third sections, but we don't know much about those time periods, and so we don't know whether he omitted names or not. But the omissions in the second section of the genealogy tell us that Matthew has deliberately engineered his report of Jesus' lineage around the repetition of the number 14. You say, what is that about? We're going to see in just a few minutes. Matthew has a very strong theological reason for building this genealogy around the number of 14. See, friends, this is no boring list of names. What this document is, is a theological argument, an argument that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hopes and expectations of the Old Testament. And we're going to see that now as we go through gene Jesus' genealogy this morning, and we're going to go through it in reverse order. We're going to start at the end, and today we're going to see three points that correspond to the three sections of this genealogy. First, we're going to see that Jesus fulfills the promises that God made to Israel about the exile. 
Second, Jesus fulfills the promises that God made to David. And third, Jesus fulfills the promises which God made to Abraham. The first point is that Jesus fulfills the promises that God made to Israel about the exile. We just finished a series in Daniel, and we talked a lot about the exile, didn't we? Uh, Matthew here calls it the deportation to Babylon, the terrible climax of the history of ancient Israel and the Promised Land. It took place about 600 years before Jesus was born. During the exile, Israel lost its sovereignty and ceased to be an independent nation. They lost their land, the land God had given to their ancestor Abraham. They lost their freedom. They became slaves and they were deported to Babylon. And all this took place because God is faithful to his word. Before God ever gave Israel the land they would eventually lose, he gave them a law. And God told Israel, you must obey my law to stay in the land. And God warned Israel in Leviticus 20, you shall keep all of my statutes and do them that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. Unrepentant national sin meant that Israel would be ejected from the promised land. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will scatter you from one end of the earth to the other. And among the nations you shall find no respite. The Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. In fact, more than a warning, this was a prophecy. Deuteronomy 4, God said, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land. You will not live long in it. You will be utterly destroyed and you will be scattered among the peoples. But after conquering the promised land, Israel ignored these warnings. As time went by, they wandered deeper and deeper into sin. God graciously sent them prophets saying, come back, don't let this continue or you will be exiled. But they didn't repent. And so in 722 BC, the northern ten tribes of Israel were taken as slaves of the Assyrian Empire. You'd think this would cause the other true tribes to wake up and change their ways, but it didn't. And eventually the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 25, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and I will bring him against this land and its inhabitants. I will devote them to destruction. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Leviticus 25 indicates the length of this sentence of 70 years was connected to Israel's failure to obey God's agricultural calendar. And because of this, Israel owed God 70 years in exile. And Jeremiah says it's going to happen. And it did. In time, Babylon became the most powerful nation in the world. They ruled over the Middle East for exactly 70 years. And during that period of time, three times the Babylonians came against Jerusalem. Three times they took more and more Jews away as slaves until they had destroyed the city. And virtually the whole population had been enslaved. And Israel did languish in miserable captivity for decades. Psalm 137, they say, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. But while Israel languished, cut off from their home, they were not entirely without hope because God had promised that one day he would gloriously deliver Israel from the exile. Isaiah 11, In that day the Lord will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel from the four corners of the earth. Jeremiah 32, I will bring them back to this place and they will dwell there safely. Ezekiel 37, O oh my people, I will bring you to the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. My servant David shall be king over them. 
I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. God repeatedly swore that he would deliver Israel from exile in a glorious second exodus, that every Israelite would be regathered to the land, that Israel would become a sovereign nation again, forevermore obedient to the Lord with the Davidic king. And the nations would see this and they would honor God. And so Israel waited for this. They waited 70 years for this. Because God had said in Jeremiah 29, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. We talked about all this in our recent series in Daniel. And in the year that Babylon fell, Daniel realized the 70 years were up. And he prayed fervently to the Lord to make good on his promise and bring about this glorious second exodus. But Daniel got a surprising answer, didn't he? The exile would not end in 70 years, not fully. You say, well, what about God's promises? They were fulfilled quite literally. God said Israel would serve Babylon 70 years, and that was exactly right. They did. God said Israel could return to the land after 70 years. And God did permit some of the Jews to return at that time, initially under a man named Zerubbabel, and then under Ezra and Nehemiah. But only a few Jews went home. Most stayed behind in captivity. And the ones who went home, they didn't go home under a Davidic king. They didn't go home politically independent. They were under the thumb of Persia. There was no glorious second exodus that left the nations in awe. Why not? Because God said the exile would continue. God had warned Israel back in Leviticus 26 that when he sent them into exile, I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And Israel owed 70 years of exile. But God said they would remain oppressed for 70 periods of seven years. Daniel 9.24 says, 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city. The fulfillment of all these wonderful promises of the second exodus still remained centuries away. And only after this longer calendar ended would the exile truly conclude. Only then would God, Daniel 9.24, finish the transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal both vision and prophet, and anoint a most holy place. Only at that time would the long-promised restoration come. And how would God achieve this restoration? God told Daniel that after a period of 483 years from the issuing of a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, there would be, Daniel 9.25, the coming of an anointed one. Now, in Hebrew, this term anointed one is the term Mashiach, or Messiah. In the Old Testament, this term usually speaks of kings or priests. And here Daniel is told there will be a coming, a future anointed one, whom Psalm 110 tells us is both a king and a priest. A figure who will end Israel's sinful rebellion against God. Who will personally atone for Israel's sin. And who will bring about Israel's forgiveness and restoration. Who will inaugurate an everlasting kingdom of perfect righteousness that fulfills all biblical prophecy. See, how is the Messiah to accomplish all this? Well, God told Daniel in chapter 9, verse 26, The anointed one shall be cut off. He will be put to death. And by his death, God will have mercy on his people and deliver them. Now, Daniel 9 is not the first time that a future figure like this is prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. Neither is this the first time that such a figure's death is foretold. Isaiah 53 
had prophesied that about 100 years earlier, 150 years earlier. But Daniel 9 is the first time that this figure is given the title that would stick to him, the Messiah, or as it's tra translated in Greek, the Christ. And from Daniel's time onward, the Israelites patiently expected the Christ. And time went by. Persia fell to Greece. Greece splintered. The evil king Antiochus came and committed his blasphemies. We've seen this in recent weeks. The Jews revolted and briefly gained their independence. But quickly they fell under Roman domination. And all this time Israel waited. And they hoped for the Messiah who would fulfill these promises. You know, we have access to Jewish sources from this era that tell us that the rabbis used the calendar of Daniel to try and calculate when will the Messiah appear. This is one of the reasons that around the time of Jesus' birth, there's so much messianic expectation because they knew the time was at hand. And now in our passage, Matthew says clearly, you're right, the Messiah's come. For verse 1 of this book tells us that the Christ is Jesus. Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. And this third section of the genealogy traces the long and miserable period running across the exile until the birth of Christ. Matthew 1.12, after the deportation to Babylon, we have Jeconiah, who had been the king before the exile. And he was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, the man who had led the first Jews back to the promised land. But that wasn't a second exodus. Zerubbabel wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't even a king. He was just a deputy of Persia. And he isn't where this genealogy culminates. He is just one more stepping stone on the way to Christ. Because the lineage continues. Verse 13, And Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. We don't know anything about any of these people because they lived in obscurity in exile. They were waiting for the Messiah, and at last he appeared. Verse 16, And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born, who is called Christ. It is in Jesus that the hopes of languishing, exiled Israel find their culmination because Jesus brings the long-promised second exodus. Matthew's going to make this connection in chapter 2. When he says, Israel once emerged from Egypt, right, that was the first exodus, so too Jesus emerges from Egypt. Moreover, just as the exodus of old set enslaved Israel free, Jesus says that by his death, he sets those who are enslaved to sin free. Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many to buy people out of bondage. Moreover, God has promised a new kingdom to Israel. Israel expected this would mean the Messiah would appear and overthrow Rome. But one of the big ideas we're going to see in this book is that the kingdom of heaven does not come in the form we expect, and yet it has come. Because the king has come, Matthew 4.17, Jesus' first sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has begun because the king has appeared. Moreover, God said he would inaugurate a new covenant, forgive his people's sins. Jesus says in Matthew 26, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And it is Jesus who will bring all of Israel's hopes to pass at the end of history when he will invite all of his people, according to Matthew 25, to inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Friends, in Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God made to Israel concerning the glorious return from exile. And Jesus will make good on every single one of them because Jesus is the long hope for Messiah. But we come now to our second point, which is that Jesus fulfills the promises that God gave to David. Here we shift our gaze further back in time, before the exile, to the kingdom that existed before it, which is described in the second section of this genealogy, which runs from King David until the deportation. Now, unlike the names in the third section of this genealogy, which are largely unknown to us, the names in the second section are all people who figure very prominently in the Old Testament, because these are the names of the kings of the Davidic dynasty who reigned in Jerusalem. And so here we learn that not only is Jesus the culmination of the hopes of the exile, but Jesus is the culmination of a glorious royal lineage, which began with David. Now, David did not start out as a royal, did he? If you know your Old Testament, you remember he was a shepherd boy, the youngest of his family. And while he was tending sheep, Saul was king. But God deposed Saul, and God sent his prophet to anoint David as king. And gradually, Saul lost power until he died. And gradually, David gained power until he succeeded Saul. And David ruled well. But based on the way that David wound up on the throne, it's natural to wonder, would David's reign be like Saul's? Would David be succeeded by his son or by somebody from another family? And God answered these questions decisively in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in this chapter, God makes a very significant promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. The Lord declares to you, to David, that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. David had wanted to build God a temple, but God says to David, you don't build me a house, you don't make me great, I make you great. I'm going to build you a house, meaning not a physical building, but a dynasty. God promises that when David dies, he will be succeeded by his own offspring. Now, when Christians read these words, we immediately take this as a direct prophecy of Jesus. But it isn't, because keep reading in verse 14. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you. When he commits iniquity? That's not talking about Jesus, is it? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us Jesus knew no sin. This isn't about Jesus. This is about David's immediate, literal son, Solomon, who, as verse 14 says, would build God a house. He did build a temple. And who would commit sin and be disciplined by God. But whose sin would not end his reign or his dynasty as Saul's had. But the, the critical verse here is 2 Samuel 7, 16. God says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David's dynasty is to be an everlasting dynasty, and David's throne will govern an everlasting kingdom. God has sworn it. Now, logically, there are only two ways that this promise could come to pass. Either there would have to be an unending succession of kings down until the end of time, or someday there would have to be a king who would live and rule forever. Those are the only two ways that this promise of an everlasting dynasty could be true. 
And D.A. Carson has observed at this point that God did not reveal to David which of these two options God would choose. David is simply told, your dynasty will endure forever. And in time, David died. Uh, chapter 1, verse 6 of Matthew. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I'm going to talk about the ladies who appear in this genealogy in a few minutes. But by Bathsheba, David fathered his successor Solomon. Verse 7, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Now Solomon fell into idolatry late in his reign, and as promised, the Lord chastised him. The kingdom was split. Uh, his descendants would only rule over the southern two tribes. The, the ten northern tribes were forever lost uh, to the, uh, the house of David. And this took place during the life of Rehoboam. But eventually he dies. Verse 7, and Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. And Abijah was the father of Asaph. Now, a lot of people have noted here that Matthew gives the name of a figure named King Asa in the Old Testament as Asaph. And no one is sure of the reason for that. It may be that Asaph was an alternative name of Asa, which has been forgotten. It may be that there was a scribal error here way back at the beginning. Or perhaps Matthew is doing something deliberate here. He changes Asa's name to Asaph. You say, well, who's Asaph? If you've read the Bible, you know that Asaph is a guy who wrote some of the Psalms, who uh, wrote, wrote material worship songs that praised the Lord. And you know that the Psalms contain prophetic material about the Messiah. Now, interestingly, a few lines later in verse 10, Matthew gives the name of another king a little bit differently. He gives the name of the wicked king Ammon as Amos. Again, no one's quite sure why this is the case. Just as Asaph is a psalmist, Amos was a prophet. And so perhaps Matthew is engaging in a bit of wordplay with these names, reminding us that not only does the lineage of David connect to Jesus, but the rest of the Old Testament does too, the psalms and the prophets. It's just a theory, but it fits the facts here, I think, pretty well. Verse 8, And Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram was the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. And we'll stop here for a minute for two reasons. First, because it is here that Matthew has deleted the names of three kings who would have fit between Joram and Uzziah, the kings Ahaziah, Jehoash, and Amaziah. They say, well, but it says Joram is the father of Uzziah. That's not problematic because the Greek verb here translated is the father of can mean to be the ancestor of. So this is not challenging inerrancy. But why is Matthew omitting these names? Well, one reason that we're going to see in just a second is Matthew has built his genealogy in groups of 14 names. And to get to 14 from the list of kings in Judah, you've got to omit a few. But why these three in particular? Well, probably because 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30 said that God would disinherit the dynasty of the evil king Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, to the fourth generation. And the three kings whose names are omitted here were descendants not just of David, but also of Ahab by a political marriage. And so by omitting these kings from the list, Matthew may be giving effect in this genealogy to God's declaration that Ahab's descendants were disinherited. So noting this omission is one reason I wanted to stop here. The other reason is that at this point, in Hezekiah's day, God clarified exactly how he intended to fulfill the prophecy he made to David. How is it that David's dynasty would endure forever? Isaiah 9.6. 
To us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This is how God means to fulfill his promise to David. There will one day be a final king who will rule forever. And how is this possible? Because this human king, this one born a child, will also truly be God. And this divine king will rule all forever and he will rule with perfect righteousness. Can you imagine that? A government which is perfectly righteous. That's what it will be like when Jesus is on the throne. And this divine king will rule over all. God has sworn it by his own zeal. And that's what he said in Hezekiah's time. But was Hezekiah this king? No. He died and stayed dead. He's not ruling. Matthew 1.10, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Was Manasseh this king? No, he was evil, not righteous, and he died and stayed dead. Matthew 1.10, Manasseh was the father of Amos, or Ammon. Was he this king? No, he was evil, and he died and stayed dead. Chapter 1, verse 10, and Amos was the father of Josiah. Was Josiah this king? Well, he was righteous, but he made a foolish mistake, and he died, and he stayed dead. Verse 11, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now here Matthew does not list all the final kings of Judah. He doesn't have to because they all reigned within one generation. These final kings saw the nation fall. They didn't rule forever. And here we see that the royal family that God had installed through David fell into obscurity. Right? We just looked a few minutes ago at the, the era of the exile, all those names we'd never heard of, running through Joseph, the man who should have been king who was a carpenter. None of these kings in the second section of the genealogy were the promised son of David. None began an everlasting righteous rule. None lived forever. But where does this lineage end? It ends with Jesus, who has the perfect righteousness of God, who died and rose to life and lives never to die again. It is Jesus who is both God and man, who will reign forever, who says to the high priest concerning himself in chapter 26 of this book, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. By saying that, Jesus declares he is the figure prophesied in the book of Daniel called the Son of Man who is a human being, but who comes on the clouds, which in the Old Testament only God is said to come on the clouds. He is both man and God. And to whom, Daniel 7, 14 says, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And Jesus said to the high priest, hey, that's me. And the Jewish authorities said, blasphemy. And they said, let's kill Jesus. But God raised Jesus from the dead because Jesus was exactly right. This is exactly who Jesus is. He is the long-promised ultimate king of Israel, the God-man who will reign forever and ever. And that is the reason, Matthew says in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the son of David. He is the culmination of the Davidic dynasty. And to reinforce this point, Matthew has built his genealogy around the number 14. And you say, well, what is the number 14? have to do with David. Well, ancient cultures ordinarily did not have a script for writing numbers. 
they usually wrote numbers by just recycling letters from their alphabet. So every letter had a corresponding numeric value. And if you add up the value of the letters in the name David, you get the value 14. And so the very structure of this genealogy, which is really the central claim of the whole book of Matthew, is Jesus is the heir of David. Jesus is the culmination of David. Jesus is the hope of Israel. Jesus will inaugurate the kingdom long promised. But interestingly, Matthew is not content to simply proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and the son of David. Matthew could have stopped there. And if he had, his point would have been that Jesus is important because he is the sum total of the hope of Israel. And you know, there are plenty of teachers and preachers who seem to think that's exactly what Matthew has done here. That that's what this whole book is about. That because Matthew is so interested in pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he's only trying to present Jesus to the Jews. And from that conclusion then, these folks try to argue that huge sections of this book are irrelevant to the church because the church consists of Jews and Gentiles. And Matthew's only about Israel. But that is flat wrong. Yes, Matthew's analysis begins with the idea that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But he's not only presented as the son of David. He's also presented as the son of Abraham. And that's our last point today. Jesus fulfills the promises that God made to Abraham. Now, at first you might say, well, hey, the title son of Abraham, that really sounds Jewish. Isn't this reinforcing the idea Matthew's only writing to Jews? Because, of course, Abraham is revered as Israel's great patriarch. So why do I say that Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the son of Abraham indicates he's presenting Jesus as more than the Jewish Messiah? Well, for two reasons. First... Although Abraham was considered a patriarch of Israel, you've got to remember Abraham was not an Israelite. Abraham was the grandfather of Jacob, who God renamed Israel. Abraham came before Israel existed. Abraham was a Gentile. In fact, Joshua 24 tells us that Abraham almost certainly grew up in a pagan home. And yet there, in his father's pagan household, in the ancient city of Ur, God called out to Abraham, Genesis 12, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God says to Abram, You leave and, and wander, and I'll show you where to stop. And as Abram wandered, eventually he came to Canaan. Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Canaan was the place. But not only did God promise Abram some land, he also promised Abram that he would make him a great nation and to make Abram a blessing, not just to his own nation, but to all the nations of the earth. Now this is the second reason that I say Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the son of Abraham points to the truth that this book is about more than just presenting Jesus to the Jews. Because from the very beginning, God made it plain that his dealings with Abraham were ultimately to touch every nation. They would impact the entire world, not just Israel. And this truth is only intensified as time goes by. And God reiterated and expanded the initial promises that he made to Abraham. God said he would make Abraham into a great nation. But later he said in Genesis 15, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. Genesis 22, I will surely bless you. 
And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. The promise escalates. Abraham is no longer just the father of a nation. He is to be the father of a vast number of descendants. And these descendants would not all be from one nation. Genesis 17.4 You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Promise escalates. Not just one nation comes from Abram, but many. More than that. God had told Abraham that he would be a blessing to all the families of the earth, not just the nations that he fathered. And God reiterated that in Genesis 22:18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now here I've got to draw your attention to this word, offspring. This is a singular word. Now at first blush, it seems that offspring in these promises speaks about the nation of Israel. We'll learn there's a wrinkle to that in just a minute. But Abraham's offspring is ultimately going to bless every nation. And this offspring ultimately will inherit the promised land. God promised in Genesis 17, 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. God says to Abraham, your offspring will inherit the promised land. But catch this. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reflecting on this promise and observing how God escalated the promises to Abraham over time, would later write in Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Paul sees that these promises point to a lot more than a piece of land. The promise to Abraham speaks about the destiny of the entire world. It will all belong to Abraham's offspring. And so, friends, God's program of promises to Abraham runs far beyond just Israel. It speaks of multitudes of people, of many nations, to all nations, to the entire earth. But eventually Abraham died. And Hebrews 11 said he died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. He trusted these promises would happen. And Matthew chapter 1 says Abraham was the father of Isaac. God appeared to Isaac and he repeated the promise. Genesis 26.3, to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But Isaac would later die. Matthew 1, 2, Isaac was the father of Jacob. God would appear to Jacob and he would rename him Israel. And again, God repeated the promise. Genesis 35, 11, A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And in time, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. The twelve sons of Jacob became the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. And Matthew draws our attention to one of these tribes in particular, the tribe of Judah. Because of a series of unfortunate events in the book of Genesis, Judah's elder brothers wound up basically losing their status as the eldest. And Judah became the chief tribe of Israel. And God made a promise of everlasting kingship that would run through Judah. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart from Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Plural. The nations, all of them, will bow to the ultimate descendant of Judah. And indeed, this line of patriarchs through Judah 
winds up running to King David. Look at Matthew 1.3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And we already know where that lineage goes. It goes to Christ. Now the names in verses 3 through 6 are largely unfamiliar to us because when these guys were alive, they were enslaved in Egypt or they were coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. But we do find some names we recognize, Boaz and Jesse and David. And these names coincide with the period when Israel had taken the promised land and begun to function as a nation, when the judges and King Saul were in charge. Now, you'll notice that the names of three women are found in these verses, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And a fourth woman is referred to in the latter part of verse 6, the wife of Uriah, which is a reference to Bathsheba. Much has been made over the years that, uh, that, that this fact that there are a, a number of women who appear in this genealogy. But really, this shouldn't surprise us, because God greatly values women and mothers. And in fact, the several chapter-long genealogy at the start of First Chronicles contains the names of a lot of women. Women do appear in biblical genealogies. But what is surprising here is the women who this genealogy singles out. We would expect to find the matriarchs here, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel. We don't find them. Who instead do we find? Tamar and Rahab, who were Canaanites. Ruth, who was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, who was an Israelite, but who married a Gentile, a Hittite. It's interesting that these are the women who are singled out for inclusion. Canaanites, you wouldn't think, would appear in the lineage of Jesus. The law said destroy them, because they were terribly evil. A Moabite like Ruth shouldn't be in this genealogy, you would think, because Deuteronomy 23 says no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord to the 10th generation. And yet there they are all the same. And I think the point here is pretty clear. The inclusion of these women shows that Jesus has not just come for Israel. He has come to redeem the Gentiles too. In the same way, these four women have something else in common. Genesis 38, Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth wound up ensnaring Boaz as her husband through a very awkward and potentially scandalous situation on the threshing floor. And Bathsheba infamously wound up in adultery with King David. The stories of all four of these women suggest impropriety. And yet, here they are in the genealogy of Christ, which shows us that not just has Jesus come for the Gentiles, Jesus has come to save people from their sin, Jews and Gentiles alike. Friend, what you need to know today is the answer to your sin, the solution to all that which has kept you from God, is found in Jesus, who has taken those who were far off and brought them near by the blood of Christ doesn't matter what race you are or what sex you are or what you've committed. If you come to Christ in repentant faith, you will find a place with him. You will be adopted into God's family, just like these women were, who found themselves in the lineage of the Savior of the world. And so the gospel, according to Matthew, is not just about Israel. It's about the Gentiles, too. And we see that throughout this book. John the baptizer in Matthew 3 warns the Jews, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Being Abraham's descendants isn't about ethnic descent. It's about having faith in Christ. 
Paul would later say in Galatians 3, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Believers, Jew and Gentile alike, we are the heirs of the promises that God has made to Abraham by our faith and our connection to Jesus. In the same way, Jesus says in Matthew 8, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. It's not about ethnic descent. It's about faith in Christ. Chapters 4 and 9, we'll see that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. And on a few occasions in this book, Jesus performs miracles for Gentiles. And the end of this book insists that Jesus sends his disciples throughout the whole world, not just Israel. So friends, Matthew's gospel is not simply a book about Jesus being the Jewish Messiah, as wonderful as that truth is. This is a book about how Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, also fulfills the promise that God made to Abraham. How through Jesus, God will bless all the nations. And so this book is not just written for Jewish readers. It is written for the church. Because the ultimate beneficiaries of the promises that God made to Abraham are not simply the Jews. Yes, God made promises about Abraham and his offspring. And yes, initially that offspring appears to be Israel. But remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.16. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says the ultimate fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham runs not through Israel nationally, but it runs to one particular Israelite, to Jesus. In the end, it is Jesus who inherits the earth. In the end, it is Jesus who is a conduit of blessing to every nation. And it is in Jesus that Abraham indeed winds up having a multitude of descendants from every tribe and people and language and nation. Jesus is the promised offspring who will bring these promises to pass. And friend, today, if you believe in Jesus, Romans 8 declares you have been made an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. If you know Jesus, you will enjoy these blessings forever because Jesus is the son of Abraham. So to conclude, and I know this is a genealogy and I know this was a tough passage, but to conclude, what we've seen this morning is this. Jesus is indeed the Christ. He is the son of David and he is the son of Abraham. He is the culmination of a rich lineage spanning the entire history of Israel. He is the culmination of the promises and the hopes of the Old Testament. That indeed, as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, and it is they that bear witness about me. And this Jesus is the focal point of God's eternal plan. And he is our hope. That like the sinful kings of Judah and the Gentile women whose names we've seen here, we need a savior, friends. We need a redeemer. We need forgiveness. We need to become part of the family of God. And only Jesus can make that happen. So today, if you know Christ, rejoice. And remember, when you read your Old Testament, that it matters. The Old Testament points to Christ. It's not like some of these guys say today, oh, we can cast off the Old Testament. No! The Old Testament testifies of Jesus. It's every theme and hope and promise point to Jesus. But today, if you don't know Jesus, I would say come to him in repentant faith and you will find forgiveness and you will find peace. For as Jesus says in chapter 11 of this book, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We need rest these days, don't we? It is a hard time. We want rest. Come to Jesus. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 